Uh, friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ, this morning we heard preached from Psalm 12 of how God's people pled their distress due to oppression and how they faithfully waited for the Lord's deliverance. This evening we examine again pleas made by God's people, but we move to the New Testament and read pleas not made on earth, but pleas made in heaven. So turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. That passage is found on page 1031 of the Pew Bibles near to you. Follow along as I read. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now a few words about the setting of the text. The book of Revelation records the visions of its author, traditionally held to be John the Apostle. John wrote during a time of great persecution, probably at the end of the first century AD. Our text is in the second major part of Revelation that begins in chapter four. Here, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room. In chapter six, the plan of God's judgments upon the world, the great tribulation is made known. Having received a scroll from the Father, Christ, the Lamb of God, opens its seven seals one by one. In verses one through eight, the Lamb opens the first four seals. Here we meet the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen represent conquest, war, famine, and death. They symbolize the forces at work in the world under God's sovereignty. Yet when Christ opens the fifth seal in verse 9, we see something different. So let's be clear about the plain meaning of the text. Who are the souls that John sees? Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. <clears throat> so John sees the souls of believers who died because of their faith. These souls represent the persecution of the church itself. For inasmuch <clears throat> as there is persecution of any member of the body of Christ, that is the church, so too is the church itself persecuted. And since they paid the highest price for their faith, the martyrs are fitting spokesmen for the church concerning the judgment of persecution. So what is the plea of the martyrs and to whom is it made? Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the martyrs ask Christ for justice for their murders. The murderers are called those who dwell on the earth. 
We can interpret this plea as the church's call for judgment against all those who have opposed Christ's gospel without repentance. We see this label, those who dwell on the earth, elsewhere in the book of Revelation. And there the context shows that those who dwell on the earth mean all those who are in rebellion against God. Finally, what is the response to the plea? Verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So Christ comforts the martyrs. They are held up in esteem. They are told why judgment is delayed and are asked to abide patiently a short time more. So let us consider the application of our text under two headings, the security of the saints, and secondly, the supplication of the saints. By saints, I mean the biblical sense of the word, which includes all those who believe and trust in the Lord. First, the security of the saints. The saints are secure in three ways. These securities give us, as believers, much comfort and encouragement as we face opposition and persecution in this life. First, the souls of the martyrs are secure in location. Their place is at the base of an altar next to God's throne. What more secure place could there be in all the universe? They are forever free from the humiliation of being made sport of in the arena. And there, they need never fear the midnight dark knock on the door by persecutors seeking to hunt them down. And regarding this safe location, recall what we heard this morning in the central verse of Psalm 12, verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he, for which he longs. Secondly, the saints are secure in their relationship with God. They are not rebuked for crying out in God's throne room. Indeed, the focus on the martyrs in the fifth seal emphasizes God's loving concern for his people. The martyrs receive white robes. The robes symbolize their justification before God through the cleansing power of Christ's blood. The white robes also signify full sanctification through the working of the Holy Spirit. The only thing still lacking is the promised joining of their souls with their resurrected bodies on the last day. Third, the saints are secure in their knowledge of God's will. The martyrs know that God's judgment of the wicked will surely come. They only ask when it will come. Their question is answered. The martyrs must wait a bit longer because their number must be yet added to until their collective testimony is complete in God's plan. Only God knows what that complete number is, but surely we are much closer to it today than in John's time. And in very recent times, many Christians around the world have lost their lives because of their faith. The day when the number of witnesses is complete must certainly be approaching rapidly. Now these blessings of security are not limited to martyrs. 
God bestows these blessings upon all believers. In chapter 7 of Revelation, John reports another vision in which he sees standing before God's throne a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. This multitude represents all believers. They stand securely before God's throne. The members of the great multitude also wear white robes, made white in the blood of the Lamb. And while our text tells us how martyrdom serves God's purpose by supplying testimony, the Bible assures all believers that whatever difficulties we have in this life, that God is at work and will bring good out of trials. Now let us consider the supplication of the saints and what their prayers may teach us. Now some might say the martyrs are in the dictive bunch. They have every promise and security that could ever be hoped for, but they seem to be unable to let go of the wrongs done to them. They have it all. Why can't they let bygones be bygones? Now what Bede the Venerable said about verse 10 in his commentary on Revelation tells us the martyrs' real motivation. So quoting Bede, they, that is the martyrs, do not pray for these things out of hatred of their enemies. Rather, they pray out of love of equity, in which those placed near the judge himself and in agreement with him, they pray that the day of judgment in which the kingdom of sin is destroyed and the resurrection of their bodies may come. For also we in the present time, when we are commanded to pray for our enemies, Nevertheless say, when we pray to the Lord, may your kingdom come. Thus B tells us that the martyrs cry not for personal revenge or cry out of malice, but because their desires are fully conformed to the will and mind of God, who judges truly and justly. Now we see in this quote, uh, Bede also referring to the Lord's command of Matthew 5.44 that in this life, the Lord's disciples should love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. We can be sure the martyrs know this as well, for we read in Acts 8, when Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament, cried out his dying words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So in our own prayers, we should pray not only for justice, but also that God show mercy to our persecutors according to his pleasure. Both prayers are pleasing to God, for they acknowledge that he is both just and merciful. And being reminded of Jesus' teaching, there is a third kind of supplication that is also pleasing to God. For did not Jesus instruct his disciples that they should pray to, uh, that they should pray to be themselves delivered from evil? And so God welcomes prayers as we turn to him for protection and deliverance. We see many, kind, many examples of this kind of, of prayer in the book of Psalms, including Psalm 12, which we heard about this morning. And of course, this kind of supplication includes our prayers of intercession, that others be delivered from persecution. Now, if you are an unbeliever, you may ask what all this 
talk about security and supplication means for you? Well, you are among those who dwell on the earth. You may have never killed a Christian or even wished the death of a Christian, but those who dwell on the earth include all those in sinful rebellion against God. And since the fall of Adam, all men have been in sinful rebellion against God. The wages of sin is death, not merely bodily death, but the death of everlasting damnation. For on the last day, the unrepentant sinner will be bound over to the just wrath of God. Think not that anything you might rest upon, your wealth, your intelligence, your professional accomplishments, your friends, relatives, associates, or even a strong convic conviction of being a good person will help you on Judgment Day. While the saints will enjoy eternal security in the world to come, the only thing certain about your fate is complete ruin. So what should you ask for? You should plead, what can I do to be saved? And the answer that the Apostle Paul gave to this very question is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. For Jesus willingly came into this sin-filled world and met much opposition and sorrow. Yet, he satisfied God's demand for perfect righteousness, leading a sinless life, a life that no man since Adam has been able to lead. And though he was without sin, Jesus willingly went to die on the cross to pay the penalty for all those sinners who come to believe in him. Jesus was raised up on the third day, thereby showing God's power and God's acceptance of the price paid to atone for our sins. For those who believe and trust in Jesus, they take on his righteousness. And because they take on his righteousness, Believers will stand blameless before God on the last day. They shall have eternal security, everlasting life, and joyful communion with God without end. Friend, in saying this to you, we do not take any pleasure in seeing you cast down or offended, but we speak out of Christian love that you may become free from the curse of sin and that you might be lifted up. So repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, please talk to us at the end of the service or with a trusted Christian friend. For you, there is nothing more important than the question, what can I do to be saved? Your eternal security depends upon your response to its only true answer. So let us conclude. Trials and tribulations are part of the Christian life as the Lord has forewarned us. But God's word instructs us well on how we should pray about these difficulties. We've talked about pleas for justice, prayers for deliverance, and requests of mercy for our persecutors. But of these three is not the last, the hardest for us. For in the present life where much sin still abides in us, it is easier to pray for deliverance or to pray for justice than to pray for mercy for our persecutors. But the Lord asks all three kinds of prayers from us, <clears throat> and we should ask for God's grace to pray all aspects of his will back to him. 
We have also heard about three kinds of securities that can comfort us during times of trial. Security of location, security of knowledge, and security from having a right relationship with God. Of these three is not the last, the greatest. For all other securities have their source in having a right relationship with God. And as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, remember that our right relationship with God is founded upon the giving of Christ's body and the shedding of his blood for us. Only because of what Christ has done for us will we be gathered together on the last day, standing securely before the divine throne, singing praises, and being clothed in robes of white. So let us pray. O gracious Father, we thank you for the securities that you bestow on all believers, that though persecution and trial may come upon us, that ultimately you will hold us securely close to you. We thank you for your word, which teaches us how persecution and trials are part of your sovereign plan. And most of all, we are thankful that we are secure in our relationship with you through the cleansing blood of the Lamb. We pray for deliverance from oppression in this life according to thy will. We pray the same for many others, especially for persecuted believers in the Middle East, the Far East, in Africa, even in Europe. We pray that your judgment will come soon upon all those who have oppressed the church. Lastly, we pray for those who persecute and hate us, that you may show mercy by drawing many of them to belief in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.